This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Let's pray, and uh, we'll dive into Revelation. God, we give because you first gave, and you gave to a degree of generosity that no human being has ever seen. I pray that you would make us like you, that one way we express our godliness is through radical generosity. Open our eyes to the things you have for us in your word today. I pray the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Okay, get it open. Revelation chapter 4, we're looking at 4 and 5 today. Revelation 4 and 5. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, Jesus sends customized messages to seven different churches in Asia Minor, saying to them, here's what you're good at, here's what you're not good at, uh, here's what you should do about it. And at the conclusion of each of the seven messages, he calls them to overcome, to conquer, to live victoriously. It's, it's Nike, the word is Nike. Well, how do you do that? The rest of the book is going to show us, but the first step God takes in helping them live victoriously is to give them a breathtaking glimpse of himself and the Lamb. So here's how you win. You take your eyes off your earthly situation, you gaze up into the throne room of heaven, and you see what reality truly looks like. So no matter the problem, the answer is to see God as all-glorious and all-sufficient. If you've lost your first love like Ephesus, if you've been persecuted like the Christians in Smyrna, if you've fallen into false teaching and immorality like Pergamum, you need to see God. Now, deep down, many of us think that God is really irrelevant to our day-to-day lives. We say, yes, there's God, but that's not really going to help my problems. That's what we think. When actually, knowing God and his transcendent, powerful, all-conquering glory and holiness is the most relevant thing for your life. We would be surprised at how many or how different our circumstances and problems look after we've received a true glimpse of God. Seeing and savoring God is what you need most, which is precisely why chapters 4 and 5 follow chapters 2 and 3. Let's look at it. Chapter 4, verse 1, after this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald and circled the throne. So the very first thing these churches, these seven churches who are facing different challenges, see is a breathtaking glimpse of the throne room of God. Now, the description of God here is striking. It's metaphorical. 
Jasper, ruby, rainbow, emerald. It's not literal. God had the appearance of these things, but he's not actually these things. In other words, John's looking at this and he's saying, this is as close as I can come to describing what I see. This is as close as I can get. God is so indescribable, human language cannot capture his glory and majesty. We sing here and we'll sing at the end of the service, no pen or quill, no scribe and perfect skill with flawless words can capture who you are. I heard a story about a missionary who a couple of decades ago now worked among a pre-Stone Age tribe in Papua New Guinea. They didn't use stone for arrowheads. They used hard wood. That's how pre-Stone Age they were. So I want us to imagine something, okay? Come with me and we'll imagine something. You're studying linguistics. You're studying the language of this tribe. And you go to school for it. You study hard, you work hard, you master the language. And now your job, now that you know it, is to go into the tribe, okay? You're going to go into the tribe, you're going to live with them, and here's what you have to do. Your assignment is you have to explain to them what electricity is, okay? Are we all there in our imaginations? Okay, you're speaking their language. No illustrative objects are allowed. What will you say? I have come to tell you about, um, we'll coin a term. We'll call it electricity. Electricity is like a very fast spirit that moves through hard things like Vines, And we loop our vines from tree to tree. Actually, we cut down our trees, we hack off all the branches, then we stick the tree back in the ground. And then we loop our vines from, <laughs> from tree to tree. And this thing like a spirit moves, moves through the vines. And, and, then, and then we can, we, can, we can make the vine attached to your thatched hut. We can attach the vine to your thatched hut, and then, and then we put um, little round things at the top of your hut with, with, uh, with, with uh, something that looks like a coil inside the round thing. And we pump the spirit through the, through the hard thing, and the roof of your hut, and it goes into the round thing, and it spins around really fast, and it starts to glow. So you can, you can stay up late at night. Why you'd want to, I'm not sure, but you can do that if you choose. And we also make these, these square things, and, 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 and the, the, the spirit moves through the hard, thing, hard things into your hut, and it goes into the back of the, of the square thing, and then there are coils on top of the, on top of the square thing, and the, the spirit moves really fast uh, around the coil, and it gets hot. So, so you can boil water in your clay pots without getting smoke in your hut. How am I doing? How am I doing at explaining Electricity. What's the matter with these people? Why don't they understand electricity? Are they stupid? Of course not. They just don't have any experience with it. I haven't even begun to talk about AC versus DC or uh, measurements, ohms, joules, volts, semiconductors. I haven't talked about any of that. They've experienced almost nothing of what makes those concepts sensible. 
So how then shall we talk about the throne room of God? Verse 4. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. And seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. They are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. So the attention now shifts to from describing what it looks like to what's happening. And we encounter a massive thunderstorm reverberating, echoing. Harkens back to the very first storm that broke out in the scriptures on Mount Sinai when the Lord descended. In the pre-nuclear age, this was the loudest, most powerful natural phenomenon these people could acquaint themselves with. Not necessarily comforting, but intimidating And you have this mention of a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In apocalyptic literature, the mention of sea is metaphorical for the fallen order, chaos, evil, which is why in Revelation 21, he sees no sea. He's not saying there's no H2O in the new heavens and the new earth. He's saying there's no more disorder, chaos, or fallenness. But is that what this is? Could it be a symbol that evil's been silenced, that chaos has been quieted? It could be. Whatever the particulars are, most scholars are agreed the effect of the sea of glass is to create distance. The imagery of this throne with all the stuff that's happening around, with the, the 28 angelic creatures around the throne and the sea of glass that separates John from it. The effect is to create distance. It denotes a barrier. No one can come casualty into the presence of God. You don't come into the presence of God sauntering and say, hey, Dad, how you doing? In the center around the throne were four living creatures. They were covered with eyes in front and back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had the face of a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. These four living creatures are likely pulled from, pulled from Ezekiel, even Isaiah, their cherubim. When God expelled Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, what did he put at the entrance but cherubim? They guard the presence of God, they see everything, all the eyes, right? Notice what the, the eyes, with their eyes, what, what the response is from them in light of what they see. You know, you don't just walk up to the front door of a dignitary and expect that dignitary to open the door and greet you. You can't do that at the White House. You can't do that at Buckingham Palace. The, the queen doesn't answer her own door. I don't think that phenomenon is a human construct, but something implanted in us. We know where it comes from. We know why we practice it that way. It's rooted in this. 
Look at what the creatures say. Day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Never stop cease. They never cease praising God because of what they see in God compels them to worship. You know, we don't see God the way these creatures see God. Seeing God is the necessary prerequisite to worshiping God. Notice also the four creatures don't predicate their worship of God on anything God has done for them, but only on who God is. They worship because he's holy, holy, holy. He's superlative. He's completely, utter, completely and utterly right in, in his character. He's spotlessly perfect. He, he dwells in terrifying and beautiful holiness. I've mentioned this before. The first time I saw the Grand Canyon, I was physically overwhelmed by its vastness and its grandeur. It hadn't done anything for me. I had student debt at the time. It didn't take care of that for me. I had eczema on my fingers. It did not heal me. It was just there to behold, and that was enough. Why do you think the breathtaking natural wonders of this world exist? Oh, they point beyond themselves to the throne room of God. God in all his godness is very much unlike us. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will they were created and have their being. So the four living creatures ascribe glory, honor, and thanks to God. The 24 elders fall down and worship God for creating all things. Revelation 4 shows us the world as it should be. It doesn't appear like there would ever be any kind of conflict, any kind of dissension or anxiety or anger in the throne room among the 28 heavenly creatures, does it? Why is that? The only place I've ever seen conservatives and liberals high-fiving one another was at a Packer game. Why was that? Because at that moment, however brief, they possessed a shared supreme love. In that moment, they took the most delight in the same thing. In in that moment, the thing that was most interesting to them, in that moment, the thing they were most passionate about, was the same thing. The throne room scene of Revelation 4 shows us what happens when a community of beings share a supreme passion and delight in the Almighty God. Chapter 5. 
Now, chapter four is to chapter five as Lambeau Field is to a Packer game. Chapter four is to chapter five as the as a stage, a theatrical stage, is to the play. Chapter four is the setting. Chapter five is the dramatic performance. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? So John sees God holding a scroll in his right hand. It has writing on both sides. The scroll is sealed with seven seals. This scroll plays a central role in this chapter and chapter 6, even into chapter 8. What is it? Richard Bauckham summarizes. He says, The scroll is to reveal the way in which the Lamb's victory is to become effective in establishing God's rule over the world. Only the Lamb can open the scroll and reveal its contents because it is his victory which makes possible the implementation of the purpose of God contained in the scroll. In other words, the scroll contains God's plans and purposes for judgment and blessing. So with symbolic imagery, we're told what is written on the scroll will not take place unless the seals can be broken and the scroll can be opened. It's at this point the narrative slows down with this pace. The mighty angel asks in a loud voice, who's worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Who's worthy to bring about the plans and purposes of God for judgment and blessing? Verse three, but no one in heaven on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll and look inside. So the answer given is a crushing disappointment. No one. No one. John shares with us his psychological response to the inability of anyone to open the scroll and see its contents. The tension in the vision is that the scroll must be opened for God's purposes for blessing and judgment to be realized. If the scroll isn't opened, there's no justice. If the scroll isn't open, there's no new heavens and new earth. A sense of hopelessness and despair and grief grips John. It's almost as if John wants us to feel how bleak and desperate life would be if the scroll remained sealed. I don't know about you, but over the past several months, I have felt like John feels. I groan and say, God, when will you bring about your purposes for judgment and blessing? The reason given that it remains sealed is that no one in all creation is found worthy. This word for found suggests a law court where one stands before a judge. No one's worthy. No one's worthy to cross the vast expanse of this sea of glass, walk up to this mighty throne room of God, 
Take from his right hand the scroll containing the purposes for judgment and blessing. No one is worthy. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. The story takes a turn. Stop crying, John. We've got one. We've got one who can do this. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. He's been victorious. And throughout John's exhortations to Christians, he says, shoot for victory. Shoot for victory. That's the way to eternal life. Shoot for victory. But we won't be victorious unless the lion wins first. Our victory is derived from and dependent on the victory of Jesus. The line of the tribe of Judah, he's worthy to cross the vast expanse of the sea of glass, approach the throne of God, and take from his right hand the scroll. No more suffering, no more injustice, no more illness, no more mourning, no more death. The lion, the tribe of Judah is worthy. Verse 6. Then I saw a lamb looking at it as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. This is remarkable. John is told about a lion. He's told about a lion. He turns and sees a lamb. The lamb is standing, but appeared as though it had been slain. A slain lamb standing. The cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Slain for the sake of his people, but now stands in the midst of the throne in triumph. Jesus conquered, not as a lion, but as a lamb. The seven-sealed book is open, not because he mauled his opponents, but because he gave his life for sinners. He triumphs through suffering and death instead of through the destruction of his opponents with overwhelming force. In other words, the cross and resurrection is what makes the book of Revelation possible. Now look at what we have next. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. It's a mixing of metaphors. Revelation does this, mixing of metaphors. It's a lamb now, a slain lamb with horns. Horns were indicative of power. An authority, a slain lamb, but a conquering slain lamb. Jesus' death both redeems and conquers. He's both velveted and heavy. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. 
When he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each had a harp and they were holding the bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. So the slain lamb, seven horns, takes the scroll. It's his death and his resurrection that makes him worthy of this. The living creatures respond. Look at verse 9. They sang a new song. Something new has been accomplished. In the death and resurrection of Christ, something new has been accomplished. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain. With your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. Verse 11. Then I looked. I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands. You picture that. 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne, the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And I heard every living creature, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and, this, and on the sea and all is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Apocalyptic literature is there for you to use your imagination. You picture it. This is happening now. It's happening now. This is not talking about something yet to come. The description of now. Have you ever been inside a loud arena? A loud arena? I was in a um, football stadium um, several years ago. Okay, look. It was the Metrodome, okay? I was watching the Vikings. Just being honest. I happened to be at the game where Adrian Peterson set the single game rushing record. He ran for 296 yards that day. 63,000 fans. It was deafening. 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 What do we have here? How many? How many? Hundreds of thousands? 
All in loud voice? There is something about the worthiness of the Lamb that elicits loud praise, folks. Better than anything you can give the Packers or the Vikings. Now, remember what this forest looks like. The the vision of chapters 4 and 5 is the answer to the problems posed in chapters 2 and 3. Whether you are struggling in your passion and zeal for the Lord or battling a sin issue or, or contending with some sort of false teaching, the vision's what you need. Let me draw out three things. Something to see, something to do, and something to aspire to. Something to see, something to do, something to aspire to. What is unmistakable and what John sees is the throne. Here's some stats. 62 times in the New Testament, the word thrones mentioned. 62. 38 in Revelation. 38. It's not even close. 17 in these two chapters alone. Did you hear the throne? Repetition? Before me was a throne. A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were four other tw- 24 other thrones. From the throne came... Throne, 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 throne. Let's transport ourselves into the first century. The imagery of throne for a first century person indicates what? It was used throughout the Mediterranean world and the Oriental world. Power and authority. Keep in mind the purpose of apocalyptic literature. To give you a divine, transcendent perspective on reality. It's there to help us see the world the way God sees it. So who's in charge? Who's on the throne? Does God control human beings? Yes. Proverbs 21.1. Write it down. Study it later. Write it down. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. You see it? Looking to the Oval Office isn't looking high enough, folks. Look to the throne room of God. Does God control nations? Job chapter 12, he makes nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations and disperses them. Who's in charge? Who's in charge? Second, something to do. It's worship. Do you see it? So many of us misunderstand worship. We think it's just singing. It's not. It's not. It's more than that. Do you notice the the heavenly creatures are oriented towards the throne? That's what sparks their worship. Who or what are you oriented towards? What throne is your life oriented towards? We face the object of our worship. We set our eyes on it. We give our attention to it. Our senses are devoted to it. Take the football fan. All week, he studies the object of his adoration. Reads about it, studies statistics, watches shows about it. 
talks about it. What's he doing? It's worship. What throne is your life oriented towards? What does it mean to worship God? What's it mean to worship God? It means to let the worth of God, the value of God sink in so much that you respond with a wholehearted reorientation of your life. Seeing what he's worth and giving him what he's worth. Third, something to aspire to. How did Jesus triumph? Not by mauling his opponents. Not by mauling his opponents. How did he triumph? Through death. Through death. Joseph Sohn was a Romanian pastor who was threatened with death. <clears throat> by his communist interrogators. Here's what he said. Sir, your supreme weapon is killing. Mine is dying. Sir, you know my sermons are all over the country. If you kill me, you're sprinkling my blood on them. People will say, I better listen. This man sealed it with his blood. So go on, kill me. I win the supreme victory then. What we aspire to Victory is achieved through paradoxical means, not by controlling worldly authority structures, but biblical obedience and gospel proclamation. That's how you win. This paradoxical slain lamb standing is the picture of victory. The way God organizes this book is profound. Jesus gets done addressing each of the seven churches, saying to them, here's what you're good at, here's what you're not good at. And then they're all given a glimpse of heaven, where the two dominating themes are the glory and worthiness of God and the Lamb and the worship they deserve. So we're going to practice that. We're going to conclude our service with an extended time of worship. And it's my prayer that we will see God like we've not seen him before. And through that, our whole life, your whole life, my life will be reorientated back to him. Let's pray.
We want to see you, God. In all your ineffable, inexpressible, indescribable majesty. We're so prone to being impressed with far less. Free us from that. Give us eyes to see more of who you are. And as we sing the throne room of Revelation 4 and 5, heighten our affections for Jesus, who alone is worthy. The slain lamb standing is worthy of blessing, honor, glory, and power forever. Transport us there now. In your name, amen.